Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we're discussing chapter 10 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is part two. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindle.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. Well, welcome Pete and Sue to Chapter 10, Part 2. Hi Alice, Hi, how are you? you? And now, at the part of the chapter which... Uh, Spensky wants to talk to us about the phenomenon of life. Our science does not answer this question. This is the enigma. In the living organism, in the living cell, in the living protoplasm, there is something indefinable, differentiating living matter from dead matter. We recognise this something only by its functions. The chief of these functions is the power of self-reproduction, absent in the dead organism, the dead cell, dead matter. I'd like to start the conversation to referring back to previous chapter where Spensky himself quoted that even though uh, something like a rock might be millions of years old, to assume that it's dead just because you can't see its change in, the, in, a, in a short period of time that we're here doesn't mean that it's not changing and that it doesn't mean that it doesn't possess some sort of consciousness. And he himself said that everything has some essence about it. So I'm interested on your thoughts where he says that a dead organism is something that doesn't self-reproduce. I'm presuming he's talking about organic matter and organic life, but I, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts and what you think about what, he's, what that, that little bit of quote says. Uh, I think, Alistair, when he talks about, um, he's just making another definition, isn't he, another distinction? Because early, later on in this chapter he also talks about, I believe, he talks about the consciousness of, of a planet or of a solar system to some degree. So he's, he's defining life as, in, in, he's just giving a definition of, of what he thinks is life, the ability to self-reproduce. And I think I'm, I'm happy to go with that de- the definition when he comes in and says, whether it's fourth or fifth or sixth dimension, I've, I've, we discussed last time that it's not really a question of putting a, a numerical number on the dimension. It's not necessarily of three dimensions because we have trouble defining the concept of life. And Pete was going to have a look at, um, discussed it about whether or not we've been able to create life. I had a very brief look. I sent, yeah, I sent a link. So I did research it. I did it straight away. Um, and it, by the way, it wasn't much research. It was literally Google. Creation of life in a lab. That's all I put in, and I found it, and it's quite recent. And it's it's Frankenstein phenomenon, and it is using electromagnetism to animate um, unicellular. Um, I'm going to call it a thing, <laughs> um, but it, it then does have, um, by every definition, an artificial life. Reproduction is something that will come next, but it, it is going to come. Being no doubt that 
once they've decided that this is the way the road they're going down, that's what they're going to create. It will happen. Anyway, moving back to this piece here. Yes, I'm, I'm ready to move on too. Okay, so his next point is, in essence, that life cannot be measured in terms of mechanical forces. So you can't measure it in terms of mechanical energy, calories or heat or units of horsepower. Uh, and I will we'll quote, that life is not a complex of mechanical forces is collaborated also by the incommensurability of the phenomenon of mechanical motion within the phenomenon of life. And then he goes on to say that it can't be measured in terms of uh, of the way we measure mechanical energy, uh, nor can the phenomenon of life, and he does say this, we, we're about to pull up that article again, nor can the phenomenon of life be artificially created by the physico-chemical method. Um, by the way, we're talking about, a, you know, it was 100 years ago, but 100 years prior to that, nearest damn it, um, we'd had Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And, and she'd used these processes of galvanism, the idea that you could animate frogs' legs with electricity and so on. And she was, she was like exploring the idea. And by the way, not by accident, they talked about this specifically. I mean, Polidori brought all of those ideas to that little conclave in um, Switzerland. And the idea that electricity might actually be life, this secret thing, we know not what, it might actually be electricity. So. The idea of the the idea that you couldn't conceive it being possible, and, and for him, you know, to say that it can't be done, um, I, I, you know, again, he's he's not really um, a clear thinker in in this area, and he's using an, he's using language in the terms of absolutes, where he should have been able to say, right now we can't conceive of it. But maybe this is possible. Look at how we've animated frogs' legs and, and other things with electricity. Who knows? But right now, where things stand right now, our understanding is that it can't be done. And all he has to do is qualify himself like this. But anyway, we will move on. I mean, I think I think I've explained it. It doesn't need discussing. But that that's the sort of thing that you have to be so careful with when reading Spensky, not to, not to be taking in with his absolutes. Yeah, I, I'm with you there because he, he does have some brilliant stuff in amongst yeah, all the yeah. other stuff. Mm. It, it's like, but but this is the point of questioning nearly line by line where we're, we are going through it and going, yep, great, that's a good one and that's not. And interestingly enough, the book that is in the um, underarchive.org where I, I um, downloaded, the it, they've uh, photocopied a guy's book from he bought it in the 1920s and you can see all his scribblings on it. And, uh, you know, you can see pages like, oh, first good point ever. And, you know, like he's, you could see where he's actually been cre you know, critiquing it on the way through. And so I, I think it's a good thing to do. And I uh, I think that makes when, when we do get to stuff that really does resonate, it makes it all the more important because we haven't yeah. dragged everything else along with it. Yeah. So his next point is, what is the experience of life? Now, he says it's a circle of the fourth dimension intersecting with the third. He says, in reality, nothing is born and nothing dies. It only represents itself to us because we see it by the sections of things. So he's bringing in, I think he's still drawing in that, uh, well, it doesn't say it, but the analogy is already mentioned about the cinematograph scene. And so we are looking at life as a beginning and an ending. So I'll just, I'll just do a quick read of what he said. 
If we shall regard every separate life as a circle of the fourth dimension, this will make clear to us why every circle is inevitably escaping from our space. This happens because the circle inevitably ends in the same point at which it, begin, which it began, and the life of a separate being, beginning with birth, must end in death, which is the return to the point of departure. But during its transit through our space, the circle puts forth from itself certain lines which, uniting with others, yields new circles. In reality, of course, all this proceeds quite otherwise. Nothing is born and nothing dies. It only so represents itself to us because we see but the sections of the... Now, the concept of a circle, if you start and end in exactly the same point, then what is the point? Uh, that's not a pun either. What is the point? If, if you are starting and finishing at the same point, what have you gained? And where is the proof that you finish at the same point? I mean, Spensky says you go to existence and non-existence. You go out of non-existence on the third dimension into back into non-existence. If there's a fourth dimension, fifth dimension, there's a you know why why would you by default go back to the same spot? What would be the point? It is true. Well, to me, the whole point of having a third dimensional experience is to have exactly that experience. So you 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 must end with more than you than you started with, unless. You, you do nothing, absolutely nothing, which is impossible because, you know, how do you do nothing? Well, even if you, had, even if you physically did nothing, you've got to, I mean, I'm going to presume that if you're alive, that, that thoughts, images or symbols will come into your mind. Mm. Unless, you're, unless you're in a, a vegetative state, which, you know, I mean, I'm doing a disservice to vegetables here, but where... We see no brain activity, but even then, does, is brain activity the only indication of thought? It's, but here's it's the possibly thing. that is an experience in itself. It's in itself, so you know, yeah, that's what, and this is what I'm coming to. Where do we define what what is an experience and what isn't? So, if you exist, presumably, and I may be wrong, that that is an experience in of itself, your existence. If you were born as a small child and you grew to any kind of um, physical development state, whether it be a toddler, a prepubescent child, an adult, and so on, you've had an experience. You've had the experience of growth. The growth hormones have been working overtime, and away we go. Oh, even if you survived one day, you've still had an experience. So, so yeah, so let's assume that that just existing, coming into existence, whatever that may mean, is an experience in of itself. So you're not going to go back to the point at which you started, are you? I mean, I'm, I'm just agreeing with you there, Alice, because this idea of a circle where we start and end in exactly the same point, what's that achieved? Yeah, I, I'm totally agreeing with you guys. And that's the thing. And, and uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll move on, but later on he talks about the spiral yeah, but I'm just, I just want to say, we're, we're not being, I mean, there's no ambiguity in the language here. He does definitely say about this going, starting in the same place, you know, yeah. He does. So he must, he, he must have something else in mind, I'd like to think. So I'll just finish that quote just to be a bit more clear with what he is saying. Uh, he says that in reality, the circle of life is only the section of something and that something undoubtedly exists before birth i.e. before the appearance of the circle in our space, and continues to exist after death, i.e. the disappearance of the circle from our field of vision. To our observation, the phenomena of life, 
are similar to the phenomena of motion as they appear to the two-dimensional being, and therefore it must be that this is the motion of the fourth dimension. I think that that's an interesting thing to, to pull out because we are not all agreed that, well, even particularly understood his point that we go back to the plane being and his point about the two-dimensional being is that solids in our third dimension appear as motion because curves and angles appear to be moving and then real motion in our dimension appears as light. And I think this is what he's drawing analogy to. He's, he's pulled this one in and now he's saying, well, the phenomena of our life is potentially motion in a high, well, he's saying the fourth, but in a higher dimension. I kind of feel there's something in that, but I can't grasp it. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts. I think he's saying it's motion of the fourth dimension into the fifth for life. I don't think, it, you know, it's, it's the motion of the fourth dimension he says we're seeing as life. Now, I don't necessarily say... No, no, not motion of the fourth dimension. He says the motion in the fourth dimension. He does, actually, That's yeah. what he said. He does. I've got, it, I've got it on the line. True, yeah. Yeah, he does. See, this is the image that I had. Say you have a fourth dimensional existence at the same time you've got the third dimensional one. And so in the fourth dimension, you are moving from birth, baby, to old person. Is that, I'm just pulling at something out of the air here, but if, if, you, if you're experiencing at the same time, do you see the changes in your body from going from young to old? Is, is he saying that that's motion that's happening with your fourth dimensional existence, moving from the state of looking like a, a small child to a, an old person. I, I, and like when you die, you kind of pop up and then continue on. <laughs> I don't know. I, I get the feeling that he's not thinking of that at all. Uh, I, I get the feeling that he's not even interested in uh, human experience per se. So, okay. Um, so what do you think he's getting at? I don't know because you've, you've, you've gone over something that um, and, and like just ignored it as though casually as though it's meaningless, that I think needs explaining. When he talks about um, we come into existence as these circles and then during during the, the existence of the circle, going from uh, departure point to end point, somehow we project lines out of the circle. Uh, nobody is. No, yeah, thank you. Nobody's even interested in discussing that. You've moved straight on as though that was just so obvious to everybody. And I, you know, what the heck is he even on about here? I have not a clue because nothing that's gone before in all the 117 pages in my version of it so far led me to that point. I have no idea what he's talking about. I have no idea, honestly. And I've, I've, I've put that in, in my book. See, the only thing that I could think of is if you were looking at a circle and it threw lines off, that, that to me is starting to sound like a spiral. That to me is starting, you know, as you're going around the circle and then fook, you go up a bit and then around and up and then around and up. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a... You're seeing something that I'm not. No, I'm just, I'm just extrapolating. I think he's a mathematician. He gets caught up on mathematical models. I mean, I don't think that they're... But is this a mathematical model? Well, yes, he's talking about circles and lines and whatever. These are all three-dimensional things that he's now taking up into a fourth-dimensional, so supposedly as, as, as moving through the fourth dimension. Wouldn't the fourth dimension be something that's completely un, un, uh, inconceivable to us to a degree? So why would you be on a circle in the fourth dimension? 
why wouldn't you just be no in the fourth dimension? You know, why isn't it? Why isn't it just open, for want of a better word, for for you know, for for all the dimension of all all possible experiences that we could have? Why does it have to be on a trajectory? Is my question. Why can't it just? Yeah, be I have no idea. Moving through it without a a a form a, a guidance mechanism. We're not on a rope. We're not on a string. We're aren't, why aren't we free just to move everywhere we want in that fourth dimension? Why stay on a circle? Why go off the line? Well, let me let me let me put this in. If he's if Dispensky is saying that in any dimension the intersection of solids in a higher dimension appear as motion, and the uh, so so he's basically saying that the dimensions intersect. So things from a higher dimension will intersect with a third dimension. Let's not even get into the whether it's motion or solids or whatever, but, but there are intersections of dimensions. So if there are intersections of dimensions, then our life is something that exists in a higher dimension and we are just tapping into the fourth dimension, intersect, intersecting with it in a third dimension, almost like... Uh, if we went into go diving, we'd have to put a diving suit on to get under the water, but inside we're still us. So maybe that fourth dimensional part of us is inside the diving suit, still with contact with the air above. We do know that there is consciousness, as we started off with the Spensky, and there is a world around us. And if we go back to those things, that's where, where we are. Consciousness is not of the world around us. Yeah, well... That's what he's still, he's still caught in that whole concept, isn't he? You yeah. know, of, of, of what is it? He's now trying to explain it. Yeah, so let's let's move on and see if this, if it gets any clearer or even worse. Okay, so um, we've touched on this before. He's he's now reiterating yet again. Motion is the perception of solids in a higher dimension, but the real motions of solids going on in the higher space is seen as the phenomena of life. So he then says the phenomena of life and the phenomena of motion are just as incommensurable for us as the two kinds of motion in its world for the two-dimensional being, um, one of these motions being real and the other illusory. So he's, he's still drawing on the fact that he's saying that life is motion in a higher dimension and we see motion in this dimension, there's two types of motion, motion being moving from point A to point B as solids in a higher dimension and movement of of those solids in a higher dimension is what we see as life. He's, he's, still, he's still pushing this, but he says, to quote Hinton on the phenomena of life, shall I go on? Hinton says of this incommensurability, there is something in life not included in our conceptions of mechanical movement. Is this something a four-dimensional movement? If we look at it from the broadest point of view, there is something striking in the fact that where life comes in, there arises an entirely different set of phenomena from those of the inorganic world. Yeah, and? <laughs> well, it's just a thought, isn't it? Upon... Yeah. So he says, so upon this basis, it is justifiable to assume that those phenomena which we call the phenomena of life are movements in higher space. These phenomena which we call mechanical motion become in turn the phenomena of life in a space lower relatively, relatively to ours and in one higher, simply the properties of immobile solids. We are still 
I doesn't it doesn't matter how many times or he says it, I'm still not getting it. I'm still not getting it. By the way, do you need to get it? I mean, is this even remotely important to understanding your experience of life here? Really? Does it matter to have these labels on? It's enough to say that there's enough, there are other dimensions uh, that we can learn to um, experience other dimensions and that, that will then enrich our experience here in the third dimension. Is, is, isn't that enough? Because uh, I'll give Hinton his due. At least he says things like probably. He doesn't claim to be <laughs> He doesn't claim the truth of and you know, Pete, I, I want to say, I said, I think you have just that beautifully summarised the first ten chapters. We possibly could have got by without too much of those ten chapters, because as he goes, as as Spencer goes in and out of all of these, I want to prove it this way or I'll state it that way. He muddies yeah. the waters. We, we thank we, you, because I think he we, does too. Yeah, we agree with what he's saying, and 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 the beautiful part of Spensky is opening up our minds to the concept of there being other dimensions. I mean, that is where I will always thank you. I think that's the most wonderful thing yeah. to think about. And, you know, okay, so then I will hear his viewpoint because he's given a lot of thought to it. And I may or may not agree with it, um, but, you know, he's he really has become very convoluted. And therein my lies... My book is just scribble. Look at <laughs> my, my book oh, is look just you. scribble. You graffiti it. <laughs> Because, because in, in his efforts to say I'm correct, I've got this great concept and now I understand it all. As we've discussed before, he makes blanket statements that are not yeah. not justifiable but also neither provable nor not provable. I mean, he could be right, he could not be right. How would you possibly yeah. know? I have no idea because I don't <laughs> you know. That's I think to your point too. Pete, as you know, in, in in agreeing with Sue here, I think the thing is, this whole book is leading us to something so much greater than being bogged down with analogies of what it could you know, be. We've said that on every single uh, discussion that we've had. People that are listening to it are possibly wondering, well, can we get to that bit then? Can we get to that great bit? You know, because we are, we have taking it upon ourselves to go through this chapter by chapter and i would have to say to anybody listening no no we can't because the purpose of this exercise is to go through this chapter by chapter that's what we set out to do and that's what we're doing and it's not our fault that he wrote it like this it's our fault that we've chosen to do this but uh, it's not our fault that he keeps going backwards and backwards and backwards over the same old ground that really has little meaning for where we want to go anyway Here's the thing, if you're reading the book and you're going, this doesn't make sense to me, I mustn't be very clever and Aspensky must be the be-all and end-all, well, I guess we're just, we're just blowing that one apart. I do think that Uspensky is intelligent and I do think he's clever, but not clever enough to put these ideas down succinctly is all I'd say. But can, can we actually discuss some of the, the stuff that you've just been going on about? Because it is interesting the, the way that he's described Where would you like to go to? The eternal now of Hindu philosophy, perhaps? We can go there, yes. I'm, I'm, perfectly, I'm perfectly happy. But, you know, we've, I, I just think that when we start talking about this mechanical movement and we're talking about, um, uh, again, how do we know that uh, mechanical motion in this dimension must look like, it must represent life in a, in a lower dimension, a second or a first? No link for me. I don't There's see none for me. No, I, I, I can kind of see it. 
I can kind mm-hmm. of see it in the sense that, well, only from the point of view that if if you saw like like us, we have life, so we we appear to to not not be as predictable as something mechanical. Mechanical, you can measure and and build and create uh so you can create create a car it's mechanical we know we know how it all works we you know we can do the engineering but but life we can't and so i think it's because it it is an enigma it it, it is not something that we can necessarily uh plot a path and say that's how it all is i think that's what he's saying and so motion to a to a lower dimension that you can measure, like mechanical motion, well, that's something that's that's predictable, but life isn't predictable. A person has their own uh, decision. They can make their own decisions. Well, we think we can. Well, but, but we think we can, yes. But that's what I think he's saying. Life appears to be that. So something moving in a, in the third dimension, as we dare say for the two-dimensional being, will be random. I, I don't know where it's going to move to next because something it's almost like the uh, the puppeteer is, is above changing and making the motion okay. happen to their will, not 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 to something that's preordained. That's what I think. Well, it moves on to something that really uh, I'm interested in hearing your opinions of. When he talks about, um, if we presuppose a space not of four but of five dimensions, then in it, the phenomena of life would probably, yes, said probably here, would probably appear as the properties of immobile solids, genus, species, families, peoples, races, and so forth. And motions would seem perhaps only the phenomena of thought. Now, before we get on to the phenomena of thought, because everybody wants to talk about the exciting words there, what the hell does he mean? Um, um, Immobile solids. Is, is, Is the concept of genus, of family, of species, a solid? I, I'm I'm kind of lost here. Help me out. I think I think his term "solid" is more something that is stationary because when he talked before about uh, a two-dimensional being seeing a line as a solid. Okay. Did you not hear the words that I just said? Did you not hear the words? Genus. Say them again. Species. Genus. Species. Family. These are concepts that he is describing as, and it's in italics in my book, so he obviously meant this to be important, immobile solids, line, genus, species, families, peoples, races, and so forth. That's quote unquote. So how, how is a genus an immobile solid? How is a family an immobile solid? I am, I am struggling here. In what sense are they immobile solids? I think he's saying that in the fourth dimension, they are immobile solids. In other words, they exist all at the one time. That's my understanding of what he means by immobile solids. Uh, immobile in the sense yeah, that they uh, are all, all, all existent all at the same time and they then, are... Uh, then I'm missing something. My, my definition of a solid is not the same as, as his. No, I think he's used a word solid where he doesn't have another word to put in their place. Because we don't really have a place, a word that is that is that really is, how, pe- how I don't know, people he says in the use book, language? Because in this in this chapter, he goes on to say that we don't have the language to describe the fourth dimension. We don't have the words and the concepts. So is he just picking up a word that he thinks might be the closest? 
I don't know. Well, I, I don't think I don't think I'd be alone in looking at the word solid in relation to um, an abstract concept that can only be um, conceptualized as thought as a solid. I, 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 I mean, sh I, I doubt whether I'm alone in reading solid and wondering how the hell in any dimension you apply that particular word to something that's only an abstract concept in human thought. Um, to make to make sense to me, I would say solid isn't literally meaning a big lump of clay with all the genus in the world lumped into it. I would say it's he he, he meant that he meant that it's the it's the next group up. That's what I think he means. Yeah, I take your point, Pete, but he he has well, not I said that. that. If 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 science went on the basis of well, he probably meant this, uh, we wouldn't really really have progressed very far in in our technical evolution we just simply wouldn't people have to be when people are being precise they have to be precise I, i'm not going to let that go i'm just not um we will move on but i i'm just again make, marking this point the thing is the the interesting part about that sentence though i think is at the end and i'm not sure what he's talking about where he says the immobile solids genus species families peoples races and so forth emotions would seem perhaps only the phenomena of thought see that's that's the bit that grabbed me only the phenomena of thought so what does he mean by that that in other dimensions thoughts are solids i had no idea that's and i think that's the problem you've got pp he is trying to pigeonhole things into a space when in actual fact they belong to externally to us into a different dimension Let's move on to the eternal now of Hindu philosophy. Let's do You're it. Right, yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so here's the quote. If taking as the foundation the principles elucidated here, we attempt to represent to ourselves the universe very abstractly. It is clear that this will be quite other than the universe which we are accustomed to imagine to ourselves. Everything will exist in it always. This, is, this will be the universe of the eternal now of Hindu philosophy a universe in which will be neither before nor after, in which will be just one present, known or unknown. Now, to me, forget everything else he just said, because in essence, what is, I think his point is that everything in, in higher dimensions, there, there is this concept that what, what we see as small units and we equate to them happening in time, they're happening in a higher dimension, they're all there, sitting there, as always there. Yep. We're just we're just slicing and dicing them and looking at them, saying that happened in time. But we've already gone over this. But he's he's linking it into the eternal now of Hindu philosophy. Now I'm sure Pete, you've got something to say about that. Why? Why would I? I think you know the eternal now is a good expression. Is there anybody that would would uh, fail to understand that concept of the eternal now? In other words, this point now is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. doesn't mean you believe it, but you, it's a reasonably straightforward concept. If anybody wants a really good explanation of this, I would suggest that they read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which does this job in a few pages and brilliantly. Yeah, well, I think that if he just comes straight to this point in this chapter, uh, well, the second half of this chapter, I should say, I think this would have would have made more sense. Um, he then brings back Hinton, 
and he says uh, Hinton feels that the expansion of the space sense, our vision of the world, will change completely, and tells us about this in his book, A New Era of Thought. Um, so he's saying he's bringing still in that that our time is an incomplete space sense of a higher dimension. Um, but you know that's all well and good. But how do we how do we actually get there? So. Uh, Hinton's not actually telling us in this quote, but he is he is likening likening it to uh, a, a revelation. He says the con- conception. This is Hinton's quote: "The conception which shall form the universe will undoubtedly be as different from our present one as a Copernican view differs from the more pleasant view of a wide, immovable Earth beneath a vast vault." Indeed, any conception of our place in the universe will be more agreeable than the thought of being on a spinning ball kicked into space without any means of communication with any other inhabitants of the universe. I love that. I thought, yep, that's kind of what we, you know, <laughs> when we hear the concept that we are the only life in this universe and you think, you know, we're the spinning ball kicked into space with, no, you know, it's kind of saying, well, really, if you are looking at things very narrowly, it would be a really great big leap that's what i think he's saying there but uh, yeah i I agree alice he's he's saying we have options out there to open our minds i would just suggest to you though that the copernican view of the universe and uh is not as bleak as as hinton's um the quote from hinton there makes it sound this abstract ball kicked into space with no communication with anything else in the copernican view there would be the concept of god and of all of these untouchable creatures in between God and the agents of God that we do communicate with through prayer and through meditation. And so the Copernican view of the universe is both mechanical and spiritual, which doesn't leave us uh, as, as, as a spinning ball in space with no, with no way of communicating with anything else. That's the only point I'd like to make, that the Copernican view isn't as sterile and as without hope, devoid of hope, as that quote by Hinton. With, is Hinton a mathematician? So I know nothing about Hinton. Um, but but it, it does sound like the language of, of very cold um, logic. But just so that we know that Copernicus was a Catholic. And so his his idea of spiritual communication would have a million layers. Okay. Well, then I think, yeah, that, well, that quote, not knowing anything about Copernicus, now takes on a new... I'm not knocking Hinton because I think it's a great image that he gives us of the ball being kicked into space. Um, yeah, I, that's what I liked about it. <laughs> unless, unless you have the understanding that we don't lose the spiritual aspect of it. When you know, use the word Catholic, when we talk about the, the Catholic Church, they did come to terms with the ball spinning in space, despite imprisoning Galileo. They have eventually come to the idea that we it doesn't actually destroy our concept of God. But for all kinds of political reasons and the idea you know, the the idea but they have come round to it. They have actually managed to fit that that particular cosmology into their, their credo. So um, oh, cool. Yeah, they, they do come around to it. They, you know, the Vatican doesn't still preach flat earthism. By the way, that's something else that we could talk about. Is is the is the Earth flat or round? I don't know, but, but we'll, that's a different thing. Let's let's move on. <laughs> All right. So then, then uh, the last piece of this chapter, Spencer starts examining what would what would man 
be outside of space and time. So if if time is the illusion of the third dimension, if we took out time and tried to imagine what man would be out of space and time, he says... Would you like me to read that, that, that passage? Yes, would you, would you mind, Pete? Are we talking about the let us imagine some objects, say a book? Is that the bit that you're going to? Yes. Well, yes. I, I, we can go to that part. Out, because well, because it's outside of time. This is the, this is where he first describes being outside of time. Okay. That's right. Yes. Yes. That's great. Let, let, let us imagine some object, say a book, outside of time and space. What will this last mean? In other words, outside of space. Were we to take the book out of time and space, it would mean that all books which have existed exist now and will exist exist together i.e occupy one and the same place and exist simultaneously forming as it were one book which includes within itself the properties characteristics and peculiarities of all books possible in the world when we say simply a book we have in mind something possessing the common characteristic of all books. This is a concept. But that book about which we are talking now possesses not only these common characteristics, but the individual characteristics of all separate books. Okay, this, like, is everybody familiar? I mean, I don't know about the listeners, but out of us three, is everybody familiar with the shadows on the wall of the cave in Plato? The idea of the essence of a concept. That's what he's talking about here. So what we're saying is when we say a book, if I said to you, there's a book about this. We, if we were talking about a simple topic and I said, oh, somebody wrote a book about that. I'm not describing, oh, yes, and it's a white book with this, this sort of binding and the paper is 250 GSM or any of this stuff. All I'm saying is book. The, the concept of book is something familiar to you, and that's what the essence of book is, and that's what they're describing here. Once I say, oh, yes, it's a green book. If you're looking for it in a shop, look for a green spine and, and things. Now I'm narrowing it down into a particular object in the three-dimensional world. But when I say a book, you know, as a concept, you know, I'm not saying somebody's made a film about it. I'm saying somebody's written a book about it. The concept of book is familiar to you. You don't necessarily even picture what a book might look like, but the concept of book doesn't. You don't question it. You know that you know the essence of what it is to be a book. You're expecting it to have a title. You're expecting it to have pages. You're expecting it to have content. And so then he, and he takes that on then to humanity. Yeah, but before we get there, he's, he's in essence saying that is book is something out of time. Isn't it? Yeah. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, Out it is. Space. Yeah, and, and that, that concept does not exist because a book isn't terribly different now than what it was 100 years ago. It's massively different than what it was in the times of ancient Rome and, and Greece because they did use the word lib libra, uh, which we use as book, you know, uh, which is where we get library from and so on. That, but they were scrolls. Their, their books were scrolls on a on a stave, wrapped around oh, a stave, and, and you would, un yeah, and so you would. And then go back to the ancient and Egyptians, and they were tablets, clay tablets. Yeah, yeah. So, and Sumeria, there, there were clay tablets in Sumer as well, with cuneiform. But so did they all come under the category of book? I don't know what they came. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they came under, but the word book, um, which we use, um, 
the same word that we translate is exactly the same in ancient Rome. So the concept of a book then might be even narrower than the idea of having a spine, pages, and a concept. The idea of book might literally just be, if we take it back down to an even even more down to its essence, um, uh, something that holds uh, content, i.e. the words, the words in it. And you can't even narrow it down and say, you know, that the words have to meet, have, have any meaning. A book is just um, something that contains words. You can't even say that it's ideas. I think, though, that the important point he's trying to make, though, is that there is, perhaps in the fourth dimension, an entity that encompasses all books. Because then he follows through to the next chapter. Why does it have to be in, why does it have to be in any dimension? I mean, for God's sake, well, we, we, I'm sitting in the third dimension, and I understand what the essence of a book is. I understand what Plato was saying in, in the cave. And I, by the way, I've never had to think about that. It was as clear as day, even before I translated it, even when I first read it in English. I don't, I don't, need, I don't need to talk about dimensions to, to actually talk about this. I think that, that you know, I think that's what he's, he's talking about, though, the essence of it. There is a dimension. And it's it a concept. Together. His concept is they exist together. We see them as separate. Yeah, well, we see each book as separate. He's talking about the concept entity which would house the lot as one ent one entity of some description. In, and uh, so that doesn't exist on the three planes. But that, that's all. I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but that's what I think he's saying. Well, he's also saying this is a concept, and I think his, his next leap is saying, well, okay, if we're looking at book as something out of space and time, it's a concept. Then his next point is, what is man out of space and time? And he's saying that man is humanity, man as a species, Homo sapiens, but at the same time possessing the characteristic peculiarities and individual earmarks of all separate men. This is you and I and Julius Caesar and the conspirators who killed him and the newsboy I pass every day, all kings and slaves, all saints and sinners, all taken together, fused into one indivisible being of a man, uh, like a great living tree in which the bark would dry twigs, green leaves, flowers and fruit. Uh, is it possible con to conceive of and understand such a being by our reason? I think he's he's trying to, the point he made earlier about being uh, genus and whatever, being grouped solid. up into the dimensions. Yeah, the solid. I think he's, he's kind of linking this in and saying it's that solid is actually a concept as opposed to well, I know the italicized solid. <laughs> I think he's he's sort of he's coming back with something from a different angle and, and explaining something a little differently here. That's what I'm getting. The reason he's put this in, open to your thoughts, because what what is his point? Why is he bringing this into this chapter? Where is he? What's what's his? I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, well, I think his whole chapter is about the fact that what we see as life. This is his point: is uh, motion on a, in a higher dimension of solids, and so therefore we are individualized down here in this dimension, but we are part of a, a grouping up as you go up into dimensions. That's that's kind of where I think he's heading with all of this. Is that what he said, though? I mean, that might be where he's heading, but is that what he said? I don't know. No, it's not what he said. Don't know that. I mean, this is where you have the spiral in Blavatsky. I mean, that huge long quote of Helena Blavatsky, and says, Thus we see in history a regular alternation of ebb and flow and the tide of human progress, 
The great kingdoms and empires of the world, after reaching the culmination of their greatness, descend again in accordance with the same law by which they ascended, till, having reached the lowest point, humanity reasserts itself and mounts up once more, the height of its attainment being, by this law of ascending progression by cycles, somewhat higher than the point from which it had before descended. In other words, a spiral. Yeah. And, and uh, Spensky says, as above, so below, that which has been will return again, as in heaven, so on earth. No, actually, actually that's, that, that's Blavatsky still saying that, not him. Oh, Blavatsky said that. Sorry, he's quoting Blavatsky. So is that his whole point? As above, so below. The division of history of mankind into gold and silver, copper and iron ages is not a fiction. We see the same thing in the literature of peoples. The age of great inspiration and unconscious productiveness is invariably followed by an age of criticism and consciousness. The one affords material for the analyzing and critical intellect of the other. And wow, you'll notice that Helena Blavatsky doesn't write in convoluted, awfully difficult and unimaginably obtuse language. That's dead easy to understand what she's talking about. It is. And it makes a lot of sense to me because you do see history repeating itself. But her point is that it's never never the same. Like it's not a dead dead set, like exact repeat. Each time we go through an iteration, we come out uh, a little more progressed. And that is like a spiral. You kind of go round and then you come down before you go up again. But you do end up at a higher point than where you where you started, which is in, in complete contradiction to the circle analogy that you start and end at the same place. No, so I'm not place. sure why. Yeah. So I'm not sure why Spensky, who has actually quoted this in his chapter, where he starts the chap or middle of the chapter, saying it's a circle, start and end at the same point, and then quotes Helena Blavatsky to say, "Who says it, it actually is? It, yeah. I've also I'd also suggest as well that he." What he's actually chosen to quote from Blavatsky moves us on as well. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say absolutely. Here, where <laughs> he starts talking about um, reflexed images, right? All those great characters who tower like giants in the history of mankind, like the Buddha Siddhartha and Jesus in the realm of spiritual, and Alexander the Macedonian and Napoleon the Great in the realm of physical conquests were but reflexed images of human types which had existed 10,000 years before in the preceding decimillennium, reproduced, and get ready, get ready for this, reproduced by the mysterious powers controlling the destinies of our world. He did not have to include that part of the quote. He's chosen. He could have stopped earlier. So why is he including um, it? Because this is the truth that we're getting to, that, that there is something unknown. Why has he spent 122 pages trying to prove mathematically in the third dimension using language which is limited, which he admit, admits to, to describe this, which can't be? The idea of sparking the idea of these unknown and mysterious powers as a seed for meditation will allow you the opportunity to try and if you try well enough succeed in communication with these higher powers and you'll find that your experience cannot be described mathematically in the third dimension this this line that you would easily overlook 
because you, you, know, you get so locked in to Ospensky and what he's trying to describe with third and fourth dimensions and solid objects being concepts and God. This, this is what should spark your imagination once we start talking about mysterious powers and control of destinies and who is the great creator is there a great creator is there a hierarchy of energy that doesn't have limiting planes like ooh this is third dimension ooh this is fourth but actually just meld into one another which they do which is kind of the concept he was trying to explain like we're all big one big lump of something you know kind of yeah but but he, but he spent a hundred but he spent but he spent 120 pages in my book well 122 when we get to here um really struggling with this these mathematical ideas of third dimension fourth dimension it's not like walking through a door it's more it's more like merging with a fog if you've ever looked at a color if you've ever looked at a color chart or actually looked at a rainbow there is no defining line where red ends and orange begins red merges and becomes orange you're right. Red, yeah, orange, right. yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. There are no defining lines. They merge. And that's how we should look at dimensions. So talking about sticks, sticks poking through um, the, the film on the top of a water doesn't help us. But now we're getting to stuff that does. And now we're starting to get to the parts of the book that actually are the reason for, the, for reading the book, and, and and I'm with you. And he's definitely, you're right, he's put that in uh, for a reason because I, I still don't understand why he spent the whole second half of this chapter basically contradicting stuff that he's put in at the very end, and the very end is what carries us forward. I think he was he was making an assumption that people's reading the book live in a scientific world and that he had to try to prove scientifically stuff that was a bit that they would think was a bit woo woo and if he only went to the woo woo stuff they would like throw his book in the fire and maybe it, it, it's that but he doesn't do it well i i would have to say that he doesn't do the persuading of it very well scientifically um blavatsky did <laughs> she did so i i would like to just sum up with your help so I, out of this chapter, I liked his analogy of the cinematograph. I thought I that, loved it. that was interesting. Yeah. So mm. uh, I think he got lost in the middle. I like the quote from Helena Blavatsky at the end. I think that's that, as you say, has sparked, you know, well, okay, give me more of that because that's, that's the interesting stuff. Um, I don't really need to go over yet again all this mathematical analogy of the higher and the lower. I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm done. I got it. Probably chapter six, where it sums it all up in one bucket. Could have just, just throw that chapter in, give me that, and then get to, get to chapter eleven onwards. You know. Uh, so I think that's where, that's where I've got to with this chapter. I, I think he, he's got a little lost, but he did have some, some good stuff in there as well. Yeah. It's, uh, I it's think you know, pulling out the things that work. At the time he wrote this, he'd obviously got two heroes that, that had like stimulated his thought. One was Blavatsky, the other was Hinton. The Hinton is a logician and a mathematician like him. Helena Blavatsky is woo and right out there with the woo-woo. Um, and he said he's got this dichotomy. He wants to write a book that, that brings his excitement with both of these people to a general public, and he feels that the people that he wants to read Blavatsky 
need the comfort of Hinton's logic and mathematical approach as well to back it up. And I, I think he's 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 thinking more about himself there than his than the general reading public because he's he's making an assumption that the public won't accept um, the spiritual stuff without the mathematical stuff. But only only fellow mathematicians and logicians would be in that category. And he, he doesn't see it beyond his own concept. That's how I feel that this has now happened. That the, the reason that it's difficult is not necessarily a failing of Uspensky, but a failing of this idea of trying to bring the concepts of two totally divergent um, personalities and intellects into this one book. He's, he's, he's trying to marry two separate concepts in the one book. He thinks that they're both doing the same thing. And I think that's where his problem has arisen. I think you're right there, because if we were totally mathematical, we'd probably grab the mathematical part. If we're totally spiritual, we'd probably grab the spiritual part. But but you won't be both in the sense that... No, because very rare. One will not... Yeah, well, one will not uh, be compatible with the other. And I think this is where we're finding... You're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think this is where we're finding the push and pull, because there is some great stuff in this book. And... Uh, there's some stuff that we go, yeah, well, yeah, not 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 making Why? it, yeah. It's it's just, and and to the point where some of it you think is that is irrelevant. If I was an editor, yeah. I'd cut that out, and I I condense I'd condense it. Let's get to the to the great stuff. And I think the great stuff isn't mathematical. It's actually down to the spiritual side of things, yeah. and it's how it's it's how you get there. Not not a, oh, it might be there, but how do you get there? How do you how do you open your consciousness? Honestly, um, that big quote, and it's the, one of the longest quotes that he's put in the book so far. He, he's put millions of quotes from Hinton and so on. This is a huge quote, and he could have just, like, pulled out bits of it. And he's chosen... It. I find that the more interesting thing that speaks to me about who Ospensky is and what he's trying to do is this. What he's chosen to actually quote here and and why he didn't end it. He's, he's taken it to a logical conclusion. I can see relating to the chapter that we just read, where he only needed to cut little chunks out of this, and he didn't need to have this, this idea of um, <laughs> this, this idea of the mysterious powers controlling the destinies of our world, which even in Blavatsky, um, out of context, it's a throwaway line. But doesn't that make you think, hang on, hang on, forget all this stuff about um, solids and uh, dimensions. Who are these? Who's controlling our destiny? And in what way? To what degree? Does this mean that um, everything is written in the stars and nothing I do will make a difference? I might as well just sit in a chair and die. Or should I go out there and, and claim my destiny like Alexander the Great or exactly Jesus? Exactly right. And so doesn't that, see, like, you know, and I believe he's thinking the latter. Yeah, I do. I do. He's, he's one for the latter. Yeah, yeah. Don't just sit there and, and be and be on. Get out there and make it happen. And how you can do that? But the beauty of an analyzer analyzing a book like this is that is not to just skip over bits, but look at every word and look at every line and look at things and what has he put in. The stuff that I have no idea about, let's face it, we're all sitting here. It's like, I haven't got a clue what he means about that. Why has he even put that in? Fine, great. Uh, but then not to skip over stuff, 
Um, I think I think the great questions are why at this point did he put that in? I find it in such detail, mm. and it's totally at odds with what he's already said. It, it contradicts think. what he's already said. Yeah, it does. So. You know, and he's a smart man, so why would he do that? He's done it for a reason. He's done it for a reason, and I think you're right. He wants to go this way, but he wanted to bring other people uh, that that would possibly, uh, the mathematicians and that would possibly uh, support him and say, you know, you've really nailed this, um, rather than sit out there and look like someone who's got these airy theory ideas or these strange ideas. He he wants to legitimise himself with his mathematics but he's really yeah. going for the more occult, spiritual side of things. Totally, totally. And this, you know, and I think this, to me, this is a demarcation point in the book. That because he hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't put a quote from Blavatsky in before. And at that time, he was a devotee. Up until up until now, you'd have thought that Hinton Hinton was <laughs> the great the great man of praise. But we yes. really now we really are seeing who he had become, and it's and he Kent. is a theosopher. And, and oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was there was a lot of Kant in the beginning, wasn't there? But then it moved. There was a lot of Kant. Drop, he seemed to drop Kant, <laughs> but he but he has yes. insisted with Hinton, and now he's introduced Helena Blavatsky, which which I find very interesting. And and this and this is where we're heading. I mean, look at. Look at, that, look at the end of that quote by Blavatsky. As the star glimmering at an immeasurable distance above our heads in the boundless immensity of the sky reflects itself in the smooth waters of a lake, so does the imagery of men of the antediluvian ages reflect itself in the periods we can embrace in an historical retrospect. As above, so below. That which has been will return again, as in heaven, so on earth. Yes, but this idea of what has happened it does come back but it comes back on a higher plane because what we've done is as a species as a race as a human race we've assimilated the lessons of that of the great race you know the the great achievements of the past that came and then sank they sank so that we could have the period of reflection and analysis so that when we rise again the next time we go even higher it's all very interesting well he's brought helena bolevitsky in now and so in essence, moving forward, we are now we are now tacking in a different direction. Yes, we are. We've finished at a point which is is uh, marking uh, start of a new uh, train of thought, and I'm looking forward to chapter eleven, and I'm looking forward to the chapters beyond it because I think now we're getting down to to where Aspensky really does have something with what we say that will be of use. Wonderful. And so chapter 11 it is, next time. Thanks so much, Pete. And uh, we've lost Sue, but uh, she was here for most of it. So I thank you again, Sue, for being here. Yeah, and, goodbye, um, <laughs> And we look forward to uh, everyone else's company for chapter 11.